0: Lord, I am thankful for your word. I'm thankful that we get to engage text tonight that is breathed out by you. And that as you breathe out the text that we are engaging, you have a specific purpose in it. There is a right interpretation of it. It is completely applicable to our lives. And it helps us to understand more who our God is and who we are. Lord, I'm also thankful that as we gather we have as a gift from you in the Holy Spirit, uh, perfect unity in Christ. So if there's anyone here where this is their first time to engage Exodus, uh, if it is, if there's anyone here who has a great grasp on the depths of the truth in Exodus, or anyone in between, each of us share perfect unity in Christ, and we count it as a gift and I'm thankful for it. And I'm thankful for the text. And I'm thankful for a God who is mighty and who has a plan and who has had a plan from before time began. As we engage that tonight, I pray that you would give us understanding and grow us in Christ-likeness. We love you, Lord. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Exodus 13. I, I'm, I've been looking forward to this study because... A lot of times, when you have a piece of text that's really deep, it's not. Sometimes it's not quite as practical. It's like you you engage something really deep, and you think, "Wow, that's really deep," but maybe it doesn't seem as practical. On the flip side, when you have a text that's intensely practical, sometimes it doesn't feel as deep. And tonight in Exodus 13, we really have a good balance of both, where it's very deep but also very practical. And so let's jump right in and engage it. Um, As we do that. Uh, We're going to recap. So, first, before we look specifically at Exodus 13, how is the Passover such a defining event? How is the Passover such a defining event? Foreshadowing of Christ, it's to be remembered. How else? yes a lot of specific details what are some of the specific details how to cook the bread yeah belt shoes loins girded staff in hand sandals on your feet what else say that again yeah blood on the doorpost That's really important what else Eat it all, completely consumed. Now, what do we learn about our walk of faith through the Passover? It wasn't just a one time event uh, a long time ago that we um, just think about in terms of, of uh, history in a book. What do we learn about our walk of faith from the Passover? We tell it to our children, absolutely. What else? Exactly. Yeah, Christ will return. It's an absolute certainty. God has never had a promise that He decided to go back on. Anything that He proclaims, He He will fulfill. It is it is not to be doubted. And so, just as the Israelites are um, in slavery in Egypt, uh, and God has said, "I will deliver you, and I will bring you out. You'll be as numerous as the stars. Feast uh, on the Passover Lamb with your loins girded, with your sandals on your feet, with your staff in hand, in in a like manner." We are to eat and, and, and serve and love and walk in eager anticipation of the return of Christ, knowing that just like Egypt was not Israel's home, this is not our home. But we are waiting for Christ to come back to redeem his people, to bring us in at the Merit Supper of the Lamb, and, and to enjoy a new heavens and a new earth in the presence of our God without sin. So, uh, it definitely informs our walk of faith. Why was unleavened bread so important it was repeated like 18 times last week. Say that again. Leaven represents sin. So, why would unleavened bread be important if leaven represents sin? Don't sin. No sin. Yeah. Yeah. Yes. Yes. And then last week we even learned that the even just having leaven in the air can leaven a lump. I didn't know that until last week. And so uh, the the picture here is consume Christ completely and walk in decisive newness. This isn't I, I'm still sort of attached to the flesh and. I'll put some Jesus in and mix it together and try to have a life that wasn't quite so ugly before. It's a picture of don't dabble in sin and don't dabble in Christ. Consume Christ completely. Be completely consumed in Christ-likeness, yet don't dabble in sin. Put it to death. That's what the word says. Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you. And so this is a picture of just a little leaven leavens a whole lump, so don't dabble in sin. During Passover, what protects the people of God? During the Passover, what was it that protected the people of God? particularly their firstborn, the blood of the lamb. And who were they protected from? God, in his wrath, is the winged destroyer. That's correct. Should you be able to explain to your children uh, that which we partake in? Yes. Why? Why? Exactly. That's really important. It's a really good indicator. If your parents say, "Mommy, Daddy, why do we do that? Why do we partake of the Lord's Supper? Why do we go on a Sunday morning and gather with these other people who call themselves believers and worship together? Why do we sing songs? Why do we give an offering? Why do we have people over to our house? Why are we hospitable? When they ask those questions, if you can't answer the questions, it might be an indicator that you're just going through the motions. And so by God's design, he says, hey, I want you to do this, but I also want you to be able to explain it particularly to your children. So if your kids ask you something and you don't know, don't, don't lie to them. And don't just tell them, well, you, you don't need to worry with that now. Find the answer because it's God's design that he would expect that you could give an answer for your kids when they ask those questions. So uh, describe the differences in emotions between the Egyptians and the Israelites when the great cry throughout Egypt was heard at midnight. What would be the difference between an Egypt, Egyptian household and an Israelite household? Yes. Yes. The Egyptian households would be in terror and in sadness, for there was not one house where someone was not dead. So there would be some serious, serious mourning. What about the Israelite household? How would how would they differ? Yes. There there was great mercy and deliverance, and I I I'm picturing something very sober. I don't see a bunch of celebrating and like, yeah, take that, Egyptians. I'm picturing a very sober reality that you're looking at your firstborn and you guys are sharing borrowed breath because God provided a Passover lamb. And there's a sobriety there where you're very aware of your condition. You're very aware of the Egyptians' condition. You're aware of who your God is and what he is very actively doing. And so this would be a sobering moment and the emotions would be different. So before chapter 12, Israel could not leave Egypt. And at the end of chapter 12, Israel could not stay in Egypt. So let's continue to look at the journey of God's people. And remember, this is your story. It's not just the story of another people. This is the story of a people of which you are a part of. We're going to start in 1250 briefly. 1250 is sort of this big verse where, where it kind of, it really just succinctly defines a, a very major movement. All the people of Israel did just as the Lord commanded Moses and Aaron, And on that very day, the Lord brought the people of Israel out of the land of Egypt by their hosts. Consider for a moment, before we dive into chapter 13, how all of the signs and the miracles and the feats of God's power were displayed. Consider what they have witnessed in the plagues. Consider what they've witnessed in the hardening of Pharaoh's heart. Consider what they've witnessed in the winged destroyer coming and taking the firstborn of each Egyptian household. They've, They've seen all these things, but they're still slaves. They still have not been freed. They still have not walked out at this point. And it's saying here that on that very day, something very major happens, which is their their deliverance. It's not until the blood of the lamb that there's true deliverance. I want us to see that. That's a main point. It's not until the blood of the lamb that there's true deliverance. They experienced all this outpouring of God's love and grace and mercy and strength. But it was not until the blood of the Passover lamb that there was true deliverance. Turn over to John 12. John 12, 24. I want us to see that they experienced a lot of great things, yet they were still enslaved in Egypt. They experienced the greatness of God, yet they were still enslaved. So what was, what's happening here is you see them working to, to have faith, and you see faith being built due to their circumstances. But then the Passover lamb is this defining point. And in John 24, Jesus actually shed some light on it uh, for us. In 1224, Jesus says this Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. So, summarize that. What does that mean? What must happen before the grain of wheat is fruitful? It dies. And before it is alone, and after it is not alone. There's fruitfulness. Now, um, Christ spoke like no other when he walked the earth. He spoke like no other. He lived a perfect life free from sin. He healed the sick, the blind, and the lame. He fed the multitudes in a miraculous way, and he baffled the leaders of the time. Yet he himself says... Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. Now turn over to John twenty seventeen. Jesus said to her, Do not cling to me, for I have not yet ascended to the Father, but go to my brother's. And say to them, I am ascending to my Father and your Father, to my God and your God. What I want you to see here is that before Jesus died, he was indicating that he must die in order for there to be the proper fruitfulness. And in John 20, that's actually the first time that he refers to the disciples as his brethren, as his brothers. And so, and, it, and there's, there's indicators there at the end of the verse where he says, that the Passover lamb has died and he's conquered death in John 20. What he proclaims in John 12, he has not yet died and conquered death and, and, and come into fullness of being our Passover lamb. And so there's this really beautiful picture there where he's saying, we are brethren now, and then look how he refers to, to God. He says, um, do not cling to me, I have, yet, I have not yet to descend to go to the Father, but go to my brothers and say to them, I am ascending to my Father and your Father. I am ascending to my God and your God. What you're seeing there is that fruitfulness that comes from the wheat falling on the ground and dying. Now turn back to John 12, and look at 25, and I've got a question for you. John 12:25. He's just said, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone, but if it dies, it bears much fruit. John 20 shows us the fruitfulness. We become brethren. His God is our God. His Father is our Father. Whoever loves his life loses it. Whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. If anyone serves me, he must follow me. And where I am, there will my servant be also. If anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. What impact does this have on our journey of faith? What impact does it have on our journey of faith for Jesus to say, unless a grain of wheat falls to the ground and dies, it will not bear much fruit? Yes, we have to die to ourselves daily. And what does that look like? Yeah, being poured out by God as a drink offering. Absolutely. And wherever you are is an important point. A lot of us anticipate, where does God want to use me? Where does God want to use Right where you are, that's where he wants to use you. How else does it inform our journey of faith? Just looking at those verses. What are we to do? What are the actions we are to take? What is the mindset we are to have? You need to act like we have an yep, act like you have an inheritance. It's a huge point. <laughs> yeah, yes. Yeah, I'm thinking of Corinthians where only God gives the growth. I mean, there's this picture of die to yourself and, and trust God to do what he is going to do. Allow him to pour you out. Allow him to clean you out as a dirty vessel and use you as a vessel of mercy. This, um, this picture, if you turn back to Exodus 12 at the end, I just want you to see that's just, it's a decisive moment. And it does not happen until the blood of the Passover lamb is spilled and then the Passover lamb is, is consumed completely. Lots of amazing things happen before that but it wasn't until the Passover lamb that you saw deliverance and you saw them being led out of Egypt. And it's the same with Christ. We, Christ came and lived this amazing life and we saw things that the world had never seen before, but it wasn't until he died that you see this, him becoming our Passover lamb and us sharing in this inheritance and it affecting us in the way that God had planned from before time began. As Psalm 8 says, in his wisdom, he put his plans together and then he created time. So uh, Exodus 13, one through two, The Lord said to Moses, Consecrate to me all the firstborn. Whatever is the first to open the womb among the people of Israel, both of man and of beast, is mine. So, note that Egypt has no firstborn left to consecrate. This is a really interesting world dynamic right here. You have Israel, who God's saying, Consecrate all your firstborn to me. And you have Egypt, where even if they wanted to consecrate a firstborn, there are no firstborn left in Egypt. There's a huge difference between God's people and those who are not God's people in this picture. And we're going to come back to this consecrating here in a minute, but just see that Egypt has no firstborn left to consecrate. Look at 13:3. We're going to read through verse 10. Then Moses said to the people, "Remember this day in which you came out from Egypt out of the house of slavery, for by a strong hand the Lord brought you out from this place. No leavened bread shall be eaten." today in the month of Abib, you are going out. And when the Lord brings you into the land of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites, which he swore to your fathers to give you, a land flowing with milk and honey, you shall keep this service in this month. Seven days you shall eat unleavened bread, and on the seventh day there shall be a feast to the Lord. Unleavened bread shall be eaten For um, Unleavened bread shall be eaten for seven days. No leavened bread shall be seen with you, and no leaven shall be seen with you in all your territory. You shall tell your son on that day, It is because of what the Lord did for me when I came out of Egypt. And it shall be to you as a sign on your hand, and as a memorial between your eyes, that the law of the Lord may be in your mouth. For with a strong hand, the Lord has brought you out of Egypt. You shall therefore keep this statute at its appointed time appointed time, from year to year. There's a few things I don't want us to miss. All this unleavened talk, we were talking uh, as a family this week. And Ella, um, we were making sandwiches. <laughs> and, uh, and Ella looked at Lindsay and said, Can you make sure that bread is not unleavened? Because it does not taste good. <laughs> Because they made unleavened bread last week, and so now she's requesting not to have unleavened, unleavened bread for her sandwiches. Normal five-year-old stuff. Um, what are the repeated things that we should pay attention to in these seven or eight verses? What are some things you hear repeated? Say that again. Remember. Remember, remember, remember. What else? strong hand that's a very important point what else 7 is definitely repeated picture of completeness you shall you shall you shall not hey you might consider i think it's also important point of your uh-huh yeah that's, that's a repeated thing. And there's one other repeated thing that's the most obvious. No leaven. No leaven. No leaven in case that was not clear. So there was a question that was asked last week that um, I think is answered for us this week. It was a really good question. Do we still keep the Passover and feast of unleavened bread? So I would ask you as you read this, do we still keep Passover and the feast of unleavened bread? I'm seeing a lot of this. But no words. Yes. Okay. How? Lord's Supper. It's a means of remembrance, specific remembrance. Let's dive into this. Leaven is removed. You consider this feast of unleavened bread. Leaven is removed so that specific focus and care can be given to consume the lamb. For a moment, consider that which is leavened in your life. The aim of this time of our study is, to, is sobering. What is leavened in your life? What are those sins that you continue in, that distract you from being completely consumed with Christ. We have such a pace about us that there is little time for conviction, and I'm convicted about it. There's such a pace where it's like, oh yeah, that's bad, that's not good, let's go on to the next thing. And for a moment, I really think it's appropriate as we read this, there's this feast of unleavened bread kept to the Lord. What is leavened in your life? What is that sin that you dabble in? What is the sin that you wink at? What is the sin that, that you ignore? What is the sin that you just don't care about getting rid of? Because here I'm seeing Christ make an appeal via John 12, with all the connections, knowing this is all breathed out by God, for you to, to not love your own life in such a manner that you would disregard something that keeps you from, from Christ. Don't disregard sin as not being bad. Um, you should uh, repent. Uh, that's, the, that's the story of the gospel. Jesus Christ saves you, and he urges you towards repentance. You repent from your sin, your sin, you turn from it, and you know that it is the righteousness of Christ counted as yours that is your hope for eternal life with God. So what is your sin? Don't wink at it. Don't dabble in it. Don't perpetuate a cycle of sin. I've gotten to witness in my own family how God has broken generational cycles with my father. Um, things that happened with my great-grandfather, things that happened with my grandfather, where my, go- my dad said, you know what? That's not going to happen anymore because he wasn't going to wink at that sin anymore. I recently wrote in my journal, don't deal lightly with, con- with conviction. When you find yourself convicted by something that you hear or read, hit your knees and allow conviction to run its course. Because if conviction runs its course, it's often the first step towards repentance. To disregard conviction is to dabble in or perpetuate a cycle of sin. So think of areas where you should respond appropriately to conviction as a means of keeping the feast of unleavened bread. Because when I ask, do we keep the feast of unleavened bread? In as much as you kill sin in your life and continue to cling to your Passover lamb, you keep the feast of unleavened bread. So don't wink at your sin. Keep this feast daily. Daily. In a like manner, how do we daily remember the Passover? We daily keep the Feast of Unleavened Bread by putting sin to death, walking in Christ's likeness, eager for sanctification. How do we keep the Passover daily? We'll give you a hint. You don't keep the feast of unleavened bread by being a good boy or girl. Yeah. There's this daily dependence upon Christ. I live under the finished work of another. The Passover blood is the only means by which God will not pour his wrath out on me. I am unrighteous. Unrighteousness is... Is, is what God's wrath is aiming at because I suppress truth in the way that I live. I dabble in sin. No matter how hard I try, I'm still going to sin. So we keep the feast of unleavened bread by saying I'm going to put sin to death But we also remember the Passover daily by saying, I'm completely dependent upon Christ because I know no matter how hard I try, I will still struggle with sin. It does not give you license to sin. It keeps us in proper perspective to aim to put sin to death, but know that no matter how good you do, it is still the perfect righteousness of Christ that should be counted as yours for you to have any hope in eternal salvation. And so, this picture is, don't dabble in sin, don't dabble in Christ, be completely given to Christ likeness to submitting to your God, yet know that no matter how good you are, you're not perfect. And so it's the blood of Christ, the blood of the Passover lamb, that gives you life in Christ. That's the gospel. That's the good news. Look at verse 8. You shall tell your son on that day, it is because of what the Lord did for me when I came out of Egypt. Like, hear that. That's what God is, God is saying. You're going to do this thing. And when your son says, why are we doing this thing? Why are we keeping the feast? Why are you, Mom and dad, why are you talking about being dependent on Christ? Why are you talking about the Passover lamb? Mom and dad, why are you trying to make sure that I'm not sitting? Like it would be generations down the road. Here in 2011, your son and daughter might look at you and say, why do we do this? Why is this so important? And your answer would be the same answer as that in the first generation. You will say, It's because of what the Lord did for me when I came out of Egypt. That's your story. Our story is the story of a people. Again, we must not miss that God aims to affect generations. And the story of this first generation of freed slaves is our story. God has brought you out of Egypt. God has called you his own. God has provided a Passover lamb. This is the gospel. This is so sweet. And I desperately want us to have children who ask about these things. I hope that our kids are observing things that would cause those kinds of questions. Consider your home. Does your home function in a biblical manner as such that your children would even ask, why is that important, mommy and daddy? Are there changes that need to be made for you to walk in a manner worthy of the call placed on your life? Are there changes that need to be made so that hopefully your children would say, why is that important? And you would say, let me tell you why this is important. This is our story. We were brought out of Egypt. Not just these people long ago in a faraway land. We were brought out of Egypt. This is our story of redemption. Our Passover lamb. Look at verse 9. And it shall be to you as a sign on your hand and as a memorial between your eyes that the law of the Lord may be in your mouth. For with a strong hand the Lord has brought you out of Egypt. What do you think is meant by a sign and a memorial? What is a sign? When you see like a stop sign, what does that mean? Stop, okay. And if you don't, yeah. Okay, so what is a memorial? Have you ever been to a memorial? Audie Murphy, anybody? It's remembrance. It's don't forget this. This is something that is at a level of importance that you don't dismiss it and forget it. So, the Lord's statutes were to be normative, and they were to be governing your everyday life. Deuteronomy 6, 7 and Psalm 1-2 speak to this, that our remembrance, you don't have to turn there, but write them down in your notes and go there later, maybe with your family, that our remembrance is active remembrance. It's not, it's not this passive thing. It's we actively remember these things. We, we walk in these things. We don't want to lose sight of what God has done and what God has ordained and how God tells us to deal with sin and how God urges us to cling to him in a right manner. Everything is affected by God's redemption. Everything is affected by God's redemption. God's redemption by the blood of the Passover lamb does not just have to deal with the spiritual things in your life that we sort of put in just a spiritual category, not counting work or school or sports or hobbies or finances or these other things that are over here. We don't just have this spiritual category over here that remains largely disconnected from the rest of life. The redemption of our great God by the Passover lamb affects every single part of your life. How you see things, how you work, how you respond to conflict, how you parent. You are freed slaves purchased by the blood of the lamb. God refers to Israel as his firstborn. Climb into this. Think about that first night where you hear the cry of Egypt and you look at your firstborn. You're probably not going to look at them just with no hope for the future. The way that the future is defined at that point would be totally different for you. When you hear Egypt crying out because there are no more firstborn in the land, some have just lost their dad, some have just lost their uncle, some have lost their, their siblings, some have lost their children, and you're looking at your firstborn, and probably your hope for them and your expectations for them just kicked up a big notch. In the same manner that you would look at your firstborn on the night of the Passover with great compassion and with high hopes... So God has compassion, love, and expectations for his firstborn. He calls Israel his firstborn. He calls us his firstborn. We are adopted. This, this, is, this is an absolutely beautiful picture. Why do you think that God's strong hand is repeatedly mentioned? Yep, reminds us that it's not by our doing. Why else? Think about it in terms of preparation. What, what's about to happen to Israel? Do you remember the first time you left home? Do you remember the first time you maybe, maybe some of y'all went off to college and you had never left home before that. Do you remember the first time you spent the night away from home? There's preparation. It's different. All they've ever known is slavery in Egypt. God is preparing them or something here, and he keeps reminding them of his strong hand. I think this puts the strong hand of others in proper perspective. We're reminded of the strong hand of our Lord as a means of reminding us and putting in proper perspective the strong hand of others. We do not fear others the way we fear the Lord because of his strong hand. Does that make sense? Like, I want my daughter to know that her daddy's got her back. Like, you know, when you hear kids talking, about, my daddy will whoop you or your daddy. My dad could take your dad. I mean, there's a certain comfort in a child knowing that their father is going to take care of them. I think that's one of the reasons that Christians are called to care for orphans and widows in their affliction. We should, we should care for the well-being of our children. And I want my daughter to know that her daddy will take care of her. So it's like a child saying, my daddy's stronger than you. Here, we're, you see the strong hand of the Lord And then you see the strong hand of the Philistines, and you're like, ah, not so much over here. You see the strong hand of Pharaoh in proper perspective. Like Pharaoh, by the rest of the world, is held in high regard as one of the strongest leaders of the strongest nations that the earth had seen. But then you see the strong hand of your Lord, and you think, man, I, I don't fear Pharaoh like I used to. Pharaoh's asking us to leave, and all of his people are giving us their gold and silver. The strong hand of the Lord is certainly one that prevails, right? Now, look at verses 11 through 16. When the Lord brings you into the land of the Canaanites, as he swore to you and your fathers, and shall give it to you, you shall set apart to the Lord all that first opens the womb. All the firstborn of your animals that are males shall be the Lord's. Every firstborn of a donkey, you shall redeem it with a lamb, or if you will not redeem it, you shall break its neck. Every firstborn of man among your sons, you shall redeem and when in time to come, your son asks you, what does this mean? You shall say to him, by a strong hand, the Lord brought us out of Egypt from the house of slavery. For when Pharaoh stubbornly refused to let us go, the Lord killed all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both the firstborn of man and the firstborn of the animals. Therefore, I sacrifice to the Lord all the males that first opened the womb, but all the firstborn of my sons, I redeemed just like my God did. It shall be as a mark on your hand. Or frontlets between your eyes, for by a strong hand the Lord brought us out of Egypt. So, question, do we still consecrate our firstborn? We keep the Pass the, we do keep the feast of unleavened bread. We do keep the Passover. Do we still consecrate our firstborn? do we currently see ourselves as consecrated firstborns let's climb into this a little what i want us to see is that in each of these things the passover the feast of unleavened bread and the consecration of the firstborn let the word climb into this in each of those three things the original action represents something deeper the passover was huge and as huge as it is it represents something deeper The Feast of Unleavened Bread was a big deal. Like, how much repetition have we heard about no leaven, no leaven, no leaven? It's a big deal. The consecration of the firstborn, are you kidding me? The whole firstborn of Egypt just died. God's firstborn Israel has been delivered, and he's saying, consecrate to me your firstborn. You better bet that's a big deal. But each of these things, though very deep and very big deals, represents something deeper. That's what I want us to see tonight. It's a really main point tonight. That deeper thing is what we now walk in. So over time, each of these things didn't become less important. Today, the Passover is not less important. The Feast of Unleavened Bread is not less important. The consecration of the firstborn is not less important. Rather, in Christ, they find their true importance. In Christ, each of these things finds their true importance. So let's look more closely at what this consecration looks like. Verse 11. Verse 11 says, When the Lord brings you into the land of the Canaanites, as he swore to you and your fathers, and shall give it to you, you shall set apart to the Lord all that first opens the womb. So, uh, verse 11 makes it clear that it is a setting apart. At, at the very least, consecration is a setting apart. So if you're sitting, you're saying, wait, is this saying like kill your firstborn? Is this saying sacrifice or get a sacrifice? What is this saying? That's why we're diving in here, because at first glance it can be confusing. So at the very least, consecration is a setting apart question why would you set something or someone apart holy say that again to make an example what else why else would you take something specific and set it apart special purpose would you say to be used special purpose again specific purpose is a big deal Look at verse 12. You'll set apart uh, to the Lord all that first opens the womb, all the firstborn of your animals that are males shall be the Lord's. Literally, sacrifice the firstborn of the sacrificial animals is what we're seeing here. If you're wondering what this looks like, literally, the sacrificial animals sacrifice the firstborn of each litter, or however you want to say it. I'm sure there's a better word to... Bring in all the livestock or whatever, but sacrifice the firstborn of the sacrificial animals. Consider this the first category of redeemed things. It, it helps me to look at this in two categories, okay? So the first category is for the sacrificial animals, sacrifice, literally sacrifice, kill the firstborn and offer that to the Lord as a sacrifice. That's the first category of redeemed things. This would be regularly observed by the family, this would be something that is regularly observed by every family member. Climb into this. Consider, you've got livestock, you've got lambs, you've got goats, and every time a, a new uh, firstborn comes about, it is sacrificed while the rest of the litter is sort of redeemed, saved, not sacrificed. And over and over again, your kids are going to be observing this, and at some point, the hope is they say, hey, why do we keep doing that? Why is that so important, Dad? Why do you keep doing that? This is what's going to be observed. This is, so climb in. Consider this context. Now, in verse 13, we're going to see a second category here. Every firstborn of a donkey you shall redeem with a lamb, or if you will not redeem it, you shall break its neck. Every firstborn of man among your sons you shall redeem. So, who, who's it? Hold on. I'm going to, just for the sake of context, I printed off the King James Version. 13, verse 13. And every firstling of an ass thou shalt redeem with a lamb, and thou will not redeem it. If thou will not redeem it, thou shalt break his neck, and all the firstborn of man among thy children shalt thou redeem. So just for the sake of context here, climb into it. Who's in the second category? There's two in the second category. The first is the sacrificial animals, and then over here we have two. Th- two. What are the two? Donkeys and people. Please don't miss this. In the first category, we have the sacrificial animals. In the second category, we have donkeys and people. Why would God decide to, let's put the donkeys and the people in the same category here. As I'm talking about consecration of the firstborn. We make the same noises. Humans and donkeys. Why do you think humans and donkeys are placed together? Say that again. Stubborn. Come on, let's get a list going. Stubborn. What else? Disobedient. What else? Say that again. Willful. Awkward. Yeah. Not graceful. We're looking towards redemption here. So we can be as honest as we can. We're talking about the natural man and donkeys. What else? They can be mean for no apparent reason. What else? They like to kick. What else? They don't do well on their own at all. A good donkey will fight off a wolf or a coyote and then fall over and die for no apparent reason. It's meant for service. Not meant for show, that's for sure. Yeah. Yeah. What are some other times we've seen donkeys in the scripture? Jesus wrote in on one. Say that what? Mary wrote in one? I thought you said they repoed one. I was like. <laughs> they repoed a donkey in the scripture? I learned something every week. A donkey spoke to a prophet? Huh. Job had a bunch of donkeys. Stubborn, frustrating, stiff-necked, hard-to-move, rebellious, defiant. So let's look at this process. So the process actually here is sacrifice a lamb or break the neck of the donkey. Like, That's step one. Either sacrifice a lamb, because we got this category over here with donkeys and humans. Sacrifice a lamb or just break the donkey's neck. It's so hard for me to contain what I'm wanting to say right now. Um, It is death or the lamb. That's the options here. Death to the donkey or sacrificial lamb. But For your firstborn children, you don't get to break their necks. Your only option is a lamb. You redeem them with the lamb. You redeem your children with the lamb. You redeem your children with the lamb. That's a really important point here. If you're taking notes, I'd encourage you to write that down. You redeem your children with the lamb. So you're not allowed to break their neck. You redeem them with the lamb. And if it's a donkey, you can break the donkey neck. Without Christ, your children are as good as dead. Oh, you went deep there. Without Christ, your children are as good as dead. God's people should care about the condition of their offspring. God's people should really care about the condition of their offspring. The donkey is a beast of burden, heavily laden. It's like the natural man. You can't bear the burden that's on you. You can't achieve perfect righteousness and thereby be accepted by God. The donkey is a beast of burden, heavily laden. Jesus entered Jerusalem upon a donkey, indicating that we too have no hope unless we are under the controlling hand of our Lord Jesus. God is comparing the natural man with the donkey, so I'd ask you, do you agree with this comparison, or are you offended by it? If offended, you are acting like a donkey. Do you see this as your lot, should you continue without Christ? Do you see your condition? Stubborn, frustrating, stiff-necked, hard to move, rebellious, foolish, foolish, A.W. Pink, the thing I love about this section of scripture is there's a lot of really great quotes. A.W. Pink, in personally identifying with his likeness to the donkey, states Thank God for the lamb provided for the ass. The more fully we realize the accuracy of this figure, the more completely we are given to how ass like we are in our lives and in ourselves, the deeper will be our gratitude. And the more fervent our praise for the redemptive and perfect lamb. If you see how much you are like a donkey, you will that much more appreciate your lamb. The Passover, sacrificial, perfect, redemptive lamb. Look at verse 14. And when in time to come, your son asks you, what does this mean? You shall say to him, by a strong hand, the Lord brought us out of Egypt. When your son sees you carrying this out, he's likely to ask questions. When our children ask questions, it is God's design that we're ready with an answer. So just know, what does God expect me of me from my children? One, he expects that you're living in a manner where your children would ask those questions. And two, when they do ask those questions, his expectation is you can answer them. And listen to what you express when you answer those questions rightly. In expressing what God has ordained you're also expressing that your aim in your child is their redemption. If you explain what just happened here, when they ask, you are telling your child, my aim is for your redemption, just like God's aim is for our redemption. I hope that you are redeemed by the blood of the Lamb. That's what you're communicating to your children. You're also communicating that redemption is only found under the blood of the Lamb. I really believe that teachable moments are God-ordained There are so many teachable moments throughout the course of a day and you want to communicate to your children as a a manner of pointing them to Christ and not just trying to sound like you know what you're doing. There are teachable moments that are God-ordained every day. Look at verse 17. When Pharaoh let the people go, God did not lead them by the way of the land of the Philistines, although that was near. For God said, lest the people change their minds when they see war and return to Egypt. All they've ever known is the life of a slave in Egypt. Once freed, if they get out and they see war, God says, well, I don't want them to change their minds and think they have to go back to Egypt. So let's do this a little differently. For those of us who struggle with patience, for those of us who struggle with tenderness, for those of us who struggle with long-suffering, consider the movement of the God of whom you are an image-bearer. Was God fearful of the Philistines? just want to make sure this is really clear. Was he like, man, those Philistines might do a really work over my Israelite children? No, what just happened in Egypt? Just gain perspective into the the context. What just happened in Egypt? Yeah, the, the absolute smackdown. Yeah, he just made fools of them. There was defiance and it was, yeah, I'm the one true God have no doubt about it and so here I just want us to see that consider what just happened to the most powerful nation on earth at the time Um, God is strategic in his plan for the good of his people are you God is strategic in his plan for the good of his people are you God is patient and understanding with the less faithful are you Jude 22 talks about having mercy on those who doubt do you have mercy on those who doubt Or do you treat them like they're a scoffer? Because the scoffer's aim is to divide. The doubter's aim is to get answers. Do you have the patience to bear with someone who is less faithful than you are? In verse 18, it says, But God led the people around by the way of the wilderness toward the Red Sea and the people of Israel went out of the land of Egypt equipped for battle. Interestingly, the very reason that Israel ends up in the wilderness is from an expression of love and mercy from God. You may find yourself in the wilderness for the very same reason. If you think, man, I'm in a wilderness. This is, a, this is hard. It is desolate. I feel like all I have to cling to is God. You may find yourself in that place for the very same reason. In some sense, God may have looked at you and said you wouldn't be able to handle the Philistines right now. In some sense, God may have looked at you and said, you could not have handled the other option. So now you're in the wilderness where uh, you will have to learn how to trust me even more fully. You're not in Egypt anymore, so this is uncomfortable to you. You're out of your comfort zone, and I've intentionally taken you out of your comfort zone because you couldn't handle the Philistines, but you need to learn how to trust me completely all day every day for everything. Don't depend on your own strength, your own understanding. You don't understand life outside of Egypt. You don't understand life not as a slave. You must submit and learn to grow in your trust and understanding of me as God. So you may be in the wilderness as an expression of love. God tends to our conditions in regards to our faith. He cares more about our faith than our conditions, which sets up the Red Sea debacle, which we'll go into next week. Look at verses 19 through 22. Moses took the bones of Joseph with him. For Joseph had made the sons of Israel solemnly swear, saying, God will surely visit you, and you shall carry up the bones with you from here. Just briefly, um, great honor is shown to Joseph because of his faith. In our culture, uh, we care very little about honoring others because many of us are way too consumed about our perceived entitlement to honor. Here we see that promises fulfilled between men can be a means of honoring both God and men. If there's a promise between men, honor that. It brings honor to God. Romans 12.10, don't turn there. But it says, outdo one another in showing honor. It's a picture of a competition in showing honor. And I would say that we have strayed from this. And we should get back to it. We should eagerly anticipate showing honor to one another as a means of honoring our God and honoring each other. Then verse 20 through 22. And they moved on from Succoth and encamped at Etham on the edge of the wilderness. And the Lord went before them by day in a pillar of cloud to lead them along the way and by night in a pillar of fire to give them light that they might travel by day and by night. The pillar of cloud by day and the pillar of fire by night did not depart from before the people. God not only provides the way, but he lights the way. And here we see God's continual presence. So I'll end with just a handful of questions and then we'll pray. Do you have a continual awareness of God's presence? Are you paying attention to where he is shedding light? Are you wandering aimlessly or grateful as a redeemed and freed slave who is under the guidance and the shelter and the protection of the one true God? We'll talk more about the pillar of cloud and light next week a little bit. Um, but know that God is continually present, and he hope his aim is that we would have an awareness of that. Let's pray. Lord, I'm thankful for Exodus 13. I feel like we could spend weeks in this chapter. There's so much. Um, So at this time, I just pray that you would take what we've heard and you would allow it to run its course. By your design, you you give us your word uh, so that we'd be warned and instructed and taught and equipped for a work of ministry, that we'd be competent and not incompetent. So I pray that in some way we could take what we have heard tonight and, and, and see what it means and apply it appropriately so that we can be more competent for the forward movement of the kingdom and the glory of our great God. We love you, Lord. We thank you for Jesus. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.